Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Fred Wellman, who served in the Army for 22 years as an aviator and public affairs officer. Fred was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot and completed four tours during operations Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. He was also a spokesman for General David Petraeus and General Martin Dempsey in Iraq. My name is Fred Wellman. I'm a retired Army uh, Lieutenant Colonel. I spent 22 years in service. Uh, I started off as an Army aviator flying OH-58 scouts, later UH-60 Blackhawks, and then transitioned late in my career to be a public affairs officer at the highest levels. Uh, I served in Desert Storm and three Iraq tours. My family has a long military tradition. We literally uh, came over here in 1640 from England. The first Wellman to serve in the uniform on, on the North American continent uh, served the French and Indian War. He was impressed that the, the British troops marched through his town and took him along. Um, we had a Minuteman answer the Lexington alarm and, and participate all the way through the, the Battle of Trenton and beyond. My father was a Marine. Uh, at the tail end of World War II. So we really, there was a long military tradition in my family, like so many that serve. There's a military tradition in their family. Uh, as I was looking at my options, as I, I loved flying. I loved the idea of being a pilot someday. I was, I was looking at my options. It was the early 80s as I approached college. I dabbled in Marine Corps ROTC and actually got rejected, which is a really unique story in and of itself. <laughs> but in the end, um, I really, West Point, the idea of going to West Point really appealed to me. The idea of having the opportunity to go to the United States Military Academy uh, as a kid from Missouri uh, and, and all that went with that was a passion. And it's funny, I got there and I, I used to joke that I graduated from West Point because uh, I ran out of time to quit. <laughs> and, uh, and in the end, I, uh, I graduated, I got commissioned as, a, as an aviator and suddenly I find myself flying helicopters in, in Korea or Desert Storm or uh, Hawaii and it's um, there's great passion for service in our family. I actually, you know, I started off as a scout pilot. I uh, I started flying OH-58s uh, in Korea, and in De I flew OH-58 scouts in Desert Storm, um, flew them and uh, commanded them in Hawaii. Um, I ended up going into the Black Hawk uh, right before Desert, excuse me, uh, Iraq One OAF, and the great the aircraft is such a beautiful aircraft. It's powerful. It's agile. Uh, for me, coming out of the tiny little scout helicopter, which was great, but didn't have enough power to really do fun stuff, uh, flying a Blackhawk with all that power. And, and our mission was such a cool one in my unit uh, in Iraq. We we kind of had all the weird stuff. I had a, had a Pathfinder platoon of infantrymen, and we had the mission, actually, that if any of our aircraft went down during the invasion of Iraq, I would be the one to go in and rescue them. Um, really just a cool uh, fun mission uh, and a great experience. Uh, I, I miss terribly. Actually, actually got to fly recently here in St. Louis. Uh, I may go back to flying helicopters again. Yet, yeah. the thing about being a pilot is you realize that 
there's great responsibility with it. It's actually why I'm so hard on fellow pilots even to this day, is the idea that when you place your hands on those controls and you lift gently off the ground, um, that all the lives and souls within the, on that aircraft are your responsibility. Yeah, you know, even I, I learned this as a young scout pilot. I had a, a left seater. Um, in those days, we actually had enlisted aerial observers in Desert Storm, and Chris Anderson, who I'm still friends with to this day, was my 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 enlisted aerial observer, and and we I taught him how to fly as much as the aircraft as I could. I taught him how to land the aircraft. I took a bullet. Um, his life was in my hands, and my life was in his hands uh, in many ways. And that integration of understanding that a moment's bad decision could lead to the loss of both of our lives. And then even more so when you get in a Blackhawk, you know, in Iraq, you've got seats out. So you've managed to pack 18 people in the back, um, stacked, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And that awesome response that goes with understanding that that you have the power to both save lives and take lives. Um, I think too often we forget that part of service. We forget that part of, uh, and even as a civilian, if you've got those kind of responsibilities, but there is a great response that goes with service to your country and service to your fellow service members. So I never forgot that. Again, I'm I'm passionate to this day of, of understanding that you have a great responsibility to those who are entrusted with your, their lives are entrusted to you. Well, when we were doing the, you know, doing the invasion of Iraq, we took seats out. That the advantage of that is I can squeeze an entire squad or half a platoon in the back of a Blackhawk. Again, the one thing about the Blackhawk, if you're just carrying people, that's nothing. I know it sounds like a lot of people, but it, it, that's a light load for a Blackhawk with seats out. You know, twelve people. Um, again, just people is nothing to a Blackhawk. This is an aircraft that can lift, you know, huge loads, but. Um, uh, it's a blast. It's a blast, but the doors open and you're strapped in. You're, you got your feet dangling on the side of the doors. Uh, I mean, I've got, I flew missions. When we first flew into Iraq, you know, dropping off food, um, we got the notice that Najaf, we'd taken Najaf on the march to Baghdad. Um, we were trying to negotiate with the, uh, Mr. Sistani, who's had his mosque there, uh, he asked for food. So we were tasked to grab as much MREs and we could pack onto aircraft and fly straight into the airfield that had just been taken under fire and just literally kick as many we had. <laughs> you know, in those moments when you see that, you see, you know, you just, the infantry wouldn't get off the ground and come help us unload the aircraft. We had to like just kick all the stuff out ourselves right on the runway and take off again. Um, you know, like I said, you look back and you see these guys stacked up, falling asleep on each other. Um, the thing about war, the thing about especially war, uh, is these these remarkable moments of clarity where you're in the middle of a mission or you're in the middle of a moment and you know with clarity that you're living history, that you recognize that as you are doing what is a relatively mundane task perhaps or something you've trained for your whole life, that you are going to be a side note in a historic moment. And I've been very blessed that I've had that feeling. As I, I knew as I lifted off flying into Iraq, that especially that second time, that this was a historic moment that would be talked about for ages. I, I knew as I landed for the first time at um, Saddam Hussein Airport in Baghdad that this was a moment carrying delegates to their first conference in democracy sitting in the room when Donald Rumsfeld came to visit Iraq to talk about the next stage of the war in 2006. Um, you sit there and kind of go, geez, man, I'm on the fly in the wall that people talk about. And uh, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about serving a country in, the, in these moments in our time is that ability to be part of what will end up being the history of your nation is, is really an awesome part of what we do. 
I joke all the time that uh, I liked invading Iraq. I did it twice. I <laughs> sounds terrible when you say it out loud, but you know. So I, I of course did Desert Storm. You know, Desert Storm. I was a scout pilot for Apaches. You know, we had been we had been participating in reconnaissance missions. We had been surveilling the border. You know, I actually went in a daytime once the invasion started, the ground invasion. And for Desert Storm especially, and, and we experienced the same, a similar um, in Iraq Freedom, is uh, you go in and, and as far as I can see is vehicles and it's it's a Mad Max. You can envision Mad Max, but on steroids. Like I remember seeing seven columns of vehicles going into Iraq from, from Saudi Arabia across the desert, um, dust everywhere. You know, you're flying along just over their heads, leading your troops, um, leading your flight. And that moment you go, wow, Jesus. You know, I, I, there was especially a desert storm. There was moments where you're like, uh, no movie could compare to what I'm seeing here. You know, the, the vastness of what we do um, when the might of the American military kicks in. It's a vast enterprise of power. Um, it's hard to imagine it. I, I, I said, I did have a hard time doing a movie without CGI, trying to depict the thousands of vehicles um, rushing headlong northbound into Iraq to cut off our enemies and outmaneuver them as fast as possible. I remember especially in Azure Shield, um, flying scouts in the dark. Um, the technology then wasn't as advanced as it was in 2003. And so it was very dangerous. Um, we had one mission where we were just, we were pushing the limits of our technology and the ability. Uh, there was a, a night mission where they called us out because there had been a, a reports of Iraqis probing the border during the air war. Uh, I took off in the middle of the night with a, a scout weapons team, a, a OH-58 scout and two Apaches. And we got out there <laughs> it was pitch dark. I mean, all I saw was black. And and luckily, the Apaches have infrared. So at that point, you say, all right, lead us home, the Apaches. And it was funny, this thing happened. The division commander wanted me to go brief them. And I'm like, okay, how am I, <laughs> you know, where? I mean, it was this vast sea of tents lined up along the border. And, and luckily, my battalion commander had to come outside with a flashlight and, like, wave me down to where I should land. Um you knew you were really riding the edge of your technology and your ability. Um, when I came home from that mission, it was extremely challenging to land and the, the dust land. We had, we had zero visibility, plus we had the dust, um, which led to the decision, a very difficult decision, um, just a day later when we had another night mission into Iraq and my crews um, essentially came to me and said, look, you know, we need to send the most, only the most senior crews in this mission into Iraq. You need to sit this one out. Uh, essentially, they did a, intervention, if you will. And and so consulting with my commander, I decided just to send my structural pilot and my more senior pilot, Hal Reichel, uh, into Iraq. And and sure enough, they go into Iraq and um, found weather, pouched into weather, uh, and never returned. Um, years we could tell, Hal flew into the ground at about 90 knots. And so there's this realization as a leader, one of the unique things about being a leader in the military and especially in combat is the responsibility of knowing that um, someone could lose their lives based on the decisions you make and the, and the guidance you give. Uh, and, and I experienced that. I unfortunately experienced that, that loss knowing that a mission I was supposed to be on led to the deaths of two very good men at a very young age. The original tactics for Attack Helicopter Battalions and CAV was actually a legacy of Vietnam with OH-58 
Charlie Kiowas and, and AH-1 Cobras, and then we continued that when the AH-64 was fielded. So the way we organized for missions was it depended on the mission. So for a mission where we're sort of doing reconnaissance, we're trying to make contact, we're actually not sure the enemy is, we're trying to develop the situation, we would break us into what they call scout weapons teams. So my platoon, I had four OH-58s, and then we had six Apaches in a, in a standard AH-64 company. Um, in my unit, it was first the 24th Aviation, um, 24th ID, and so we would go in as a scout weapons team with the Apaches. So I was the light team, so I had two Apaches, and my colleague would have four Apaches and two scouts. In that team, the Apache is the most valuable piece of equipment, right? And so the scout would go ahead. So typically, uh, if we're doing a scout weapons formation, the scout would be slightly ahead of the uh, Apaches, if not a mile or more, kind of feeling out the ground, looking for targets. This manifests itself when, um, during the last part of Desert Storm, as we cross Route 1, we had reports of multiple movements of heavy divisions of Iraqis on the highway. We were sent in. All we had was the information there was tanks. So I took my scouts out ahead of time, and we... um, developed, you know, looking for targets. So we went out actually without the Apaches. And then once we found a good spot to put the Apaches to, to, that could have a line of sight on the highway, then we brought the Apaches in and, and, and then broke into teams. So it, it was it was dependent on the tactical situation. But uh, it was funny because that day, that day we broke into the light team. I had, the, I had a, one of my Apaches, when he went to go uh, spin up his rockets, actually fired a pair of rockets at me and damn near took me out <laughs> accidentally, which would have been a bummer. I have a way to get shot down by your own Apache, but which happened a lot because the, the just a spark could set those rockets off. But yeah, you, you just take these systems and you go develop. That's what we did. We would go up. I mean, that day I remember vividly, you know, flying my f- scout up to the highway and, and it turned out the Iraqis were hiding underneath the bridges. And so I would come up and they'd shoot at us from underneath the bridge. I'd break right, break left, and then call the Apaches and the Apaches would come in and, and destroy the target. But it was a great system. Years later, they would try to just go to pure Apache companies and they'd do their own scouting essentially. But uh, it was early days. It was really great. The scouts were great. We, our job was navigating. Our job was finding targets, um, sort of being the bait a little bit. So, And we were unarmed. That was, a, that was the really interesting part is your unarmed aircraft. So high adventure, you could say. We were constantly training at, at Fort Stewart to, to seamlessly transition from whatever the situation was. So if it was the scouts going ahead to identify a battle position for the, of the Apaches and then bringing them in to line up, you know, six astride, shooting at things, uh, to seamlessly transition to how to break into teams to find targets. We had done this over and over, almost to the point of being, it was boring. We could do it so seamlessly um, that it was just part of our DNA. Very little, we never had to talk about where, yeah, where, where, where'd you go? Where'd you go? It was always, we all knew each other so instinctively having trained so hard at Fort Stewart that by the time we got into combat, it was really just focusing on the tactical situation at hand. Where, where was the target? Who do we develop? And my whole career was dictated by what I learned um, as a young lieutenant in the 24th ID, um, that unit that, you know, we, we do the training over and over and over until it becomes a muscle movement. Um, and that way you're ready for almost anything. So whenever the tactical situation changes with combat, when the enemy gets a vote, you're ready because the actual functioning of the organization is a muscle movement. The actual adapting to the, the targeting is where you put your brain into things. So it, I tell you, we were, I think, I think the attacks were solid for Desert Storm, especially in, in the end, we used them throughout in the very, uh, almost every single of the tactics we had practiced we used at the tactical level during Desert Storm, especially in just just that short time. It's a tough fraternity to join when you lose soldiers. Um, for us, you know, we flew the night mission. They flew the night mission, I should say. Came back, and Hal and Mike didn't return. 
so we spent the night trying to find them. And then in the morning, we actually sent an entire company of Apaches um, and Blackhawks into Iraq to sort of fly the routes. And then, and then they found the aircraft crashed several hundred or a dozen kilometers into Iraq. The war doesn't stop. Um, the need for our, our mission doesn't change. So it's tough. I remember when we found out, me and Doug Gurman, the commander, kind of took ourselves aside. We, I remember we were sitting in a bunker with Doug, sort of just crying it out, you know, a uh, grown adult man, just sort of crying it out together quietly as commanders and then kind of getting our stuff together to go back to the team and, and give them the short break. I mean, we, we had a memorial service the very day and during the memorial service, we actually got a haul to go take off for a potential, you know, Iraq incursion. I actually left the memorial service running my aircraft to launch. And that defines it, right? That the challenge you have is that with loss, you still have to go on with the mission. And I think in many ways, though, for that time, we, we never understood. I mean, my God, I was I was home six weeks later and we really talk about it. You know, in the 90s, we just sort of moved on, if you will, that we didn't know survivor's guilt was a thing. Um which I only found out when I was in my 50s that, <laughs> that I had survivor's guilt, which was just like PTSD. Um, and so it is a very difficult, very difficult thing to manage. But again, you do fall back on your training. You fall back on um, the years that went into preparing you for that moment and the leadership that kicks in to say, look, this is bad. We've lost guys. We still have a mission to continue. How do we do it? I mean, I had to reorganize my unit because I'd lost essentially a third of my combat power with that loss. Um, I wasn't getting any replacements. So we went into Iraq without replacements. Um, so you just have to kind of just dust yourself off and fly the mission because the mission doesn't stop just because you, you lose folks, unfortunately. For me, it was a very formative thing. I mean, I was 25 years old. And so imagine that stress uh, and carrying it is, is sort of the burden of command. That's what people talk about, the burden of command. Um, you will have to make those decisions that could lead to men dying, and you're going to have to live with that. It's not for everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So I go to Iraq in uh, another great unit. Um, it's funny, though. It's, I was the ex- operations officer for a Black Hawk battalion. I was the S3. My battalion commander was a great guy. Uh, just a damn nice guy. 
I figured out early on, though, we couldn't have two nice guys, right? <laughs> the XO was a pretty nice guy, too. So I, I, I joke often that when we were invaded Iraq the second time, I was really an asshole. <laughs> and what I mean by really an asshole was like, look, I'm, I'm taking everybody home this time. You know, I learned my lesson um, that you have to be more direct. You have to be very direct and making sure that the procedures are followed, that safety is protocols, that we're, we're doing the things we need to do to be ready. Um, so I was relentless in our training preparation for the second invasion. I was that asshole running around saying, put your damn helmet on or <laughs> dig your damn hole, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because the last thing on earth I want to do is try to have to explain to a widow, as I did to another widow previously, two widows, um, that, you know, the I, just the idea that we took a rocket attack and I had guys sitting on their lazy asses instead of digging holes, um, was infuriating to me. So I was a relentless asshole <laughs> and I'm proud of it. Uh, and, and you know what, every single one of my men and women came home from that trip. So I think it shaped everything for me. I mean, there's a feeling, uh, goes into it. And then I went back. I mean, I remember going back for my fourth tour or my third Iraq tour and, and thinking, you know, man, at some point my luck's going to run out. You know, I mean, the night before I arrived in my unit, um, the trailer next to mine got taken out by a rocket. I was like, Whoa, you're really kind of, uh, gambling. <laughs> gambling at some point, but uh, but it does. I think it framed for me my whole career. The, my approach to training, my approach to prepping men and women for combat was relentless. Um, I, I you know for many years I didn't associate much with any of my former soldiers from that unit because I thought they don't want to hang out with me because I was such an asshole. And I had the nicest note from someone. Um, it was actually on a plane, and they found out they were sitting next to somebody who was one of my soldiers from Iraq. And and they said, oh man, you know, Wellman got us ready. <laughs> you know, Wellman, Wellman, Wellman kept us. He literally told the guy, he goes, Wellman. I think Wellman kept us alive through that tour. I was like, well, that's a hell of a compliment. And and that doesn't mean we didn't do tough things. It doesn't mean we didn't fly very dangerous missions. But I do believe you train and you prepare and you're relentless in the discipline that goes into military preparation and military service. Um, you can lower the odds of losing troops uh, to the random things. Because, you know, most deaths in combat aren't aren't directly related to the enemy. Even Hal and Mike, they crashed because of weather. It wasn't enemy action. And so I, as a leader, have been obsessed since, uh, and while I was in the military, with taking out and reducing the risk of those factors um, causing me to lose men or women in combat. I think a lot of people thought that OIF would be much like Desert Storm, where we would take down the country and, and then leave. Um, I remember having this conversation with my peers. Um, one ended up being a three-star general <laughs> when he was the Brigade 3. But then, um, and saying, look, I don't think you get it. There's no government. There's nobody to hand it off to. We, we're it. You know, we kind of pottery barn, right? We, we broke it. We got to fix it. And so... I remember early on when I arrived at Q West Air Base in northern Iraq, we were the, one of the first people there. I had no spare people. I had a pilot with a pistol as my gate guard, if you will. And um, a gentleman, approached, an older gentleman, approaches the note in English and a kid. He had a kid with him. And the note essentially said that they used to get their water from the base and that there was bullets laying in their village from the base. Um, I would only find out later that the, my infantry counterparts had set up a range thinking there was nothing on the other side of the hill and there was. Uh, so unfortunately, their bullets kept on going and landed in the village. And that led to a, an incredible adventure of serving as sort of the civil affairs guy for that large swath around QS. So my very first experience of work with Iraqi part was literally local Iraqis who had been 
devastated by the loss of their government and were struggling to make ends meet. And, and we became their government anyway. So we ended up building schools and a clinic and delivering water and building roads. So uh, that morphed into, for follow-on tours, where I served as an advisor to the Ministry of Defense and the, the Joint Staff, the Iraqi um, uh, Iraqi military advising them on public affairs and um, helping them build their offices and build their capabilities. So I really, um, I spent the next three tours um, working closely with our Iraqi partners and, and helping their their country get better or or worse, if you will. <laughs> I mean, even our Iraqi counterparts who, who as civilians who made the brave decision to even work with us, um, Dr. Muhammad, that man I mentioned, the man who sent one of his older villagers to meet us, Dr. Muhammad ended up being the, the leader of my uh, efforts to interact with my Iraqi counterparts. Dr. Muhammad would be murdered in the clinic I built him in 2012. He made a brave, very brave decision to better his people at great risk to himself. Again, he was blown up in 2006, lost two of his legs, and then he was murdered six years later. Um, Sheikh Rod, who was the Sheikh of their village, ended up joining when Mosul sort of fell in 2004. He took his villagers and basically created a police force in his village, which ended up being an, an early Iraqi battalion, ended up being a battalion command of the Iraqi army before being pushed out because they wanted to have a more former army. And then he was murdered. Bassam, my first interpreter, was murdered for being an interpreter. You know, again, I could go on and on. Um, colonels I work with, the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, were assassinated. You know, these men and women, but mostly men, were, were stepping up for their country. Um, and they, they did right. Uh, it didn't always go well. It was a very dangerous place. It still is, which is why I'm so passionate about helping our interpreters and our, our allies get safety when the time comes. Um, when I asked Dr. Muhammad, I remember sitting in the, the village day one day saying, I don't understand it. Why are these people able to place bombs in broad daylight on the side of the highway? I know people are seeing them. Why are they reporting to the authorities? Why aren't they, why aren't they doing the right thing? And Muhammad said, he goes, you must understand. He says, for 30 years in Iraq, you didn't see things. You know, you, you did not see the men in the black car pull up and take the neighbors away in the middle of the night. You didn't see it. And so when you see a country that's been under authoritarian rule try to become something else overnight, uh, and the foolishness of our hubris to believe that we could convert that in a quick manner, that we could convert it in just months, hey, we'll have an election, everything's better now, is such a hubristic approach. Um, people forget the democratic traditions that exist in the colonies long before we had America, okay? That wasn't the case in Iraq. And so we were working to solve that. And something I say often to this day is, at some point we decided that every solution to everything was a hammer, that, that the U.S. military was the solution, that we're going to use soldiers like me to build schools. We're going to use soldiers like me to make sure girls got to school. That's great. But the problem with that is when everything, the only tool you've got in the toolbox is a hammer, well, everything's a nail. Everything needs to be hammered. And so... I knew very early on that there was going to be limits to what we could accomplish if we didn't approach it with an understanding of the Iraqi people and, and what they wanted their needs. And this goes to our politicians. I had someone who is a very famous politician today <laughs> come over and tell us that we should break Iraq into three parts. There should be a Kurdish and a Shia and a Sunni. Just break it up. I'm like, okay, that sounds awesome, but that's not what they want. <laughs> you know. And so it was just, um, again, I mean, that was 2000. 
six, you know, and so I saw through the arc of my three tours in Iraq, especially that there was definitely going to be limits to what we could do. And then I'll be honest, I'll tell you one of the most frustrating things for me was always, you know, know, something we say a lot now in retrospect from our wars is that we didn't fight a 20 year war or a 12 year war. We fought one year wars 20 times. And for me, especially at the highest levels when I was working at the three or four star level is that was demonstrated very clearly that every time a new unit arrived, well, everything that had been green for the last year, everything that had been going well on their stoplight charts and everything that had improved got set back to zero again. And and it was incredibly frustrating to watch this short-term mentality that each unit would bring with them that, uh, well, sure, the 101st did really well here, but, you know, we're the 82nd. We're going to do it better. Um, we're going to do different because they're the 101st and they suck. You know, it's just this very short-term unfortunate military mindset that we were, we're trained in also can be um, undermine our success. So while I talked about earlier in this conversation about how the military mindset and discipline can be such an important tool in our toolbox in combat, I also believe that military mindset and focus on victory and decision-making can also undermine us in, in contexts that aren't directly having to do with getting shot at. Um, we don't do nuance well, <laughs> you know, and, and when you're talking about a political solution to a, a, a problem, there has to be nuance. So I think, unfortunately, I was painfully aware that we were in a very challenging circumstances as early as 2003 in those early days saying, I, this may be beyond our scope. I remember being one of the guys saying, where's our phase four plan? I don't understand. You know, we're here at Q West Air Base. I've taken down the government. There's no government. What's the plan now? Where's phase four? Um, and if you remember the history of it, we didn't get our phase four plan for several weeks. Um, frankly, the insurgency had kind of taken hold by the time we were given orders on how to handle it. I remember talking to a colleague then saying that this is not good. You know, we, we're we not prepared. I mean, I'm getting in an argument with my higher headquarters about how we should handle our local civilians. Um, hearing an American officer tell me that if we get too dug in here, if we feed them, is what he said to me. It's a true story. If we feed them, it's like these dogs, these dogs running around the base. And if we start feeding them, they'll come rely on us. We'll never get out of here. And I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, man, you know, we just took out their government. You know, these are human beings. The whole point was to, quote, liberate them. And you're saying, uh, they're dogs. And that's when I really started saying, Jesus, you know, if this is the attitude of people at higher levels than me, um, we're going to have a problem on our hands. And we did. That was Fred Wellman. To learn more about Fred and his career after the Army, listen to his interview on Burn the Boats. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. 
Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.